Welcome back to Lead, Travel, Pray. This is episode two, and today we're going to focus on emotional intelligence. So some of you might be wondering, what is this thing called emotional intelligence or EQ? I think about it as the words we use, how we make people feel, how we show up to do our work, kind of the how of what we do versus the what in terms of our results or the deliverables. And that really being intelligent about it is having command of ourselves and control of our emotions. So that's kind of my layman's definition, but Michelle, you do this work more officially, kind of helping people develop emotional intelligence. What would you say is your working definition? Yeah, Rebecca, I agree with what you said, and I think that it makes a lot of sense. I guess that a simplified way of looking at it is when you're communicating with someone, how aware are you of your own communication style and the impact that that's having on somebody else? And then your ability to regulate it and change it in the moment. And so I would say it's about um, not only your own communication style, but then being fully present to recognize what that style is doing with the other person who you're communicating with. So now that we have our formal definitions down, I mean, let's really talk about why is this important? Why did we feel like this needed to be the topic of episode two? Does this really matter? Yes. (laughs) It does. So as I started thinking about this as a topic for today, what I really like about it is that, yes, it falls under the leading topic, but this is everybody. Any communication that we're doing with people day in and day out, our style impacts other people. We can choose to be on autopilot and ignore it, or we can choose to pay attention to it and be more self-aware and be communicators that other people want to spend more time with. I think that higher emotional intelligence people are, in my experience, they are easier to be around, easier to communicate with. Yeah, I agree. I was at a conference in early December and a speaker got up and said, you know, what's the best quality of the best leader you've ever had? So if you boil down that best example, what's the one thing that made them the best? And then did the same for the worst. Who's the worst leader you've ever had? And what was the one thing that really made them the worst? And then when you wrote those two things down, the person had us come up and plot it in three buckets. Was it how smart they were or their IQ? Was it the work experiences or technical expertise they had gained in their career? Or was it their emotional intelligence or their EQ? And every single person in the room plotted their best characteristic and their worst characteristic in the emotional intelligence bucket. And that just stood there as a visual for us for the rest of the session to say, this is why it's important. It is what makes us our best and our worst. And Daniel Goleman, who is kind of the modern father of of emotional intelligence, although some things have been written prior to him, he really brought it about um, more popular culture management discussions in 1995. He says that 67% of your ability for superior performance relies on emotional intelligence, which is double that of 
your technical expertise or how smart you are, your IQ. And that's for me why there's such a burning need for us to be better at this because it is the differentiator. And yet we go to college and we never spend any amount of time talking about or focusing on developing our EQ. We're so focused on our IQ until we're ready for that first job, whether it be internally working for a company, doing uh, entrepreneurial work or um, consulting work, you have to interact with others. And it doesn't matter how many degrees you have or what your IQ score is. If you can't figure out how to interact with other people effectively, you're not going to be successful. So I think that ultimately is, is where we got to with how we identified this as our topic for episode two. And so we've identified this is important, but the question really is if we're not learning about it in school, how do we learn about it? Yes, I do think that people can get better at this. There um, is probably a ceiling depending upon how naturally predisposed you are toward this of how how much better you can get. But as a coach, I have to believe that people can get at least somewhat better at this. And um, I think that a huge part of it is where we'll start the conversation in just a moment around self-awareness. If you are willing to be self-aware, then I think that you can build on this. If you're not, it's really hard because it's really not even in your purview as a leader or a person. Yeah, I tend to agree. I do think there are pieces that are probably easier to move than others, but it all comes down to a desire to do better or to be different because this is a harder thing to develop than in technical knowledge or expertise. I think building capability and mastery in this space is probably the hardest because we're complex, right, as humans and everything that we bring from our backgrounds and experience kind of shades the way that we might might be thinking. Um, but I am encouraged by some of the things that I've been looking at recently that do help, and hopefully we'll be able to unpack some of those here for you today. So let's dive in. There are a number of models around emotional intelligence. Um, so if somebody were to Google it, right, you'd find a number of different ways to look at it. But there's so much overlap around the components of emotional intelligence. So why don't we walk through five of those components of emotional intelligence and talk a little bit about what they are, what does that mean um, to uh, our listeners in terms of an area in which we might want to further develop, um, and uh, share some examples and stories of times where we have saw some major blunders uh, in these areas and times where we have seen some growth, whether it's in ourselves or in others. So... Let's talk about some of those components. Michelle, you already talked about one of them, a component of emotional intelligence being self-awareness. Yeah, so just to build on that, I would say that um, we'll reference Daniel Goleman's model. He has a foundational article in Harvard Business Review that's been out for a number of years called What Makes a Leader? And he really takes a deep dive into the five different components. So the first one is around self-awareness. It's about recognizing our moods emotions and what drives us. And then secondly, and um, I've had to learn the hard way personally that self-regulation is not the same thing as awareness. So self-regulation is about being able to control or redirect some things that are more disruptive. Um, In other words, thinking before we act. 
So even though I can be aware of it, I may not be able to regulate it in the moment. So um, those are two really different components. The third one is motivation. It's about having the passion to work that goes above and beyond money and status. It's part of it is the driver for why would you work on emotional intelligence? Do you want to move up and advance and get into a leadership role? So maybe that's your achievement. Are you afraid of failing? So how does that play out with um, the different components that you need to work on? The fourth area is empathy. That's being able to kind of understand the emotional makeup of others, being able to quote-unquote put yourself in their shoes and understand the emotional reaction that you get from other people. And then the fifth one is around social skills. So being able to really manage relationships, to build networks, to find a group of people that you can get social support from and to be able to build effective rapport with them to have that emotional connection. Fantastic. So that was a good overview of the five components of emotional intelligence. So let's back up and dive a little bit deeper into each one of those, um, starting with sort of the most foundational one, which is step one, we have to be self-aware. So examples of times where you have seen some people, leaders, though they may be intelligent and have good intentions, aren't self-aware. Um, or anybody willing to share examples of times when we were not self-aware? Yeah, I can definitely think of times in my career where people thought, for example, being the smartest person in the room was how they best contributed to a team's success. And, you know, I think about, as I've been in a few different organizations, how we really have promoted more of this leader as doer versus leader as people leader, willing to bring in smarter people, leverage diversity and inclusive ideas, and really um, not be always the person with the solution and the best idea. And I think a lot of times for those folks, it's maybe a piece of their self-confidence um, either they're overly confident and feel like that's the way they best contribute or they feel like that's the only way they can add value and they aren't aware enough of how to best develop and, and garner um, like the collective intelligence of their team. I've worked in places with super smart people, but I see them getting kind of uh, overridden or, or hidden by this leader ego or this agenda to have kind of the bright idea. And for me, that's kind of the first part of self-awareness that comes to mind. Yeah, when your strength becomes actually the thorn in your side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say that, um, so I just have a few catchphrases of common ones that I experience. Um, So interrupters, people who think that what they have to say is far more important than what anybody else has to say. And so they'll just cut you off and talk for a really long period of time and still not recognize that they're not allowing anybody else to talk. So interrupters, um, people who... um, get super defensive, but they have no idea that they are defensive 
they don't know what that looks like. So for example, getting into over explain mode where um, I say something and then you feel the need to explain it and then explain it again. And then once again, explain it a third time. And um, they don't recognize that there are times where that really looks like defensiveness. So those are a couple of common ones that kind of come to mind. Uh, inappropriate use of sense of humor. They've offended somebody and just have no idea, those sorts of things. Um, so, Michelle, when you were just talking about the interrupter, right, uh, that like hits me personally. Um, so I am an extrovert and I became aware of that at a very early age and chose to see that as a positive and a strength and something that helps me to be successful. It wasn't until, I don't know, mid to late 20s um, where I became self-aware of my extroversion um, potentially stifling others and having a negative impact on my relationship with others. For example, if I were in a meeting and a small group meeting and there was you know, a question that was thrown out to the group, as an extrovert, I tend to think out loud. I tend to think through talking. And so that ended up looking like Sandy answering the question first, jumping right out of the gate, and someone um, with more, more introversion who is, is reflecting on the question and thinking thoughtfully about their answer now doesn't have a chance to speak. Um, I had no idea that my um, talking, <laughs> my level of participation was potentially stifling others. Um, so that was a point that I didn't become aware of until my mid-20s. Which then, once you're aware, great, step one down, but now we're on to the second component of emotional intelligence, which is the self-regulation. So, great, now I know that this can be perceived negatively by others, but what do I do about it? Yeah, so um, Sandy, I think that that's a great example, and it is the hard part of self-regulation that even sometimes we could recognize, oh, I'm talking a lot in this moment, um, but you have a lot to say, and so you just want to jump in, right? Mm -hmm. Or as a more introverted person myself, I can um, just get caught up in the conversation and listen for so long that I'm not actively engaging. And um, so that's where the self-regulation comes in of making sure that I I am fully engaging, that um, I'm building trust with others by sharing what's on my mind, doing it in a way that is respectful of them. That is the uh, trust component. Uh, being comfortable with ambiguity. Um, so we don't always know what to do in a given moment and being willing to be, I'll call it vulnerable, to um, say that I may or may not be self-aware. I may or may not know how to regulate in this moment, but I think that it is the um, openness to being able to change in the moment because, wow, as an introvert, I can actually over-talk sometimes, which is a misnomer that people think, oh, only extroverts talk a lot. No, introverts are thinking a lot, so by the time they get their speaking turn, sometimes we can over-talk and have to regulate that. Um so I spend a lot of time as a coach helping people with specific tools on being able to regulate in the moment. So for example, if you're an interrupter, I uh, will frequently use an acronym called WAIT, W-A-I-T, why am I talking? Mm 
So the time that it takes you to say that acronym, to ask yourself the question and think of the answer, allows somebody else to jump in on the conversation. So that's a great way to self-regulate and allow other people to kind of jump in. Yeah. W-A-I. Nope, I don't have anything to add to that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the things I remember being told at some point was that the highest level of listening is listening to the point of being willing to change your mind versus just thinking about your rebuttal or the clever thing you need to say next. And if you can really get yourself to a point of emptying out those thoughts and and clearing your mind to, to be willing to have it changed, um, it it does actually make you more involved or deeper engaged in the conversation. Um, so that's a bit for me because I was always like, I don't know, I probably should have been an attorney. Like, what's my defense to this? What's my next counterpoint point? You know, I love the intellectual debate. But then I was just in my own head in that conversation. I heard a person say um, last week, actually, um, an external speaker, he said, um, all conversations are with myself and sometimes they involve other people. And it was interesting, right? Like how people say, how were we in the same different meeting? You heard this, I heard that. Um, but really we don't get a shared perspective because our own filters around context and opinions and beliefs start to shade all of that. And so being able to regulate around making those context judgments, filtering out what you didn't want to hear, I think is a, is a really big part of it. He said, the only thing we have control of is how we think. And so if you can start to get control of that, then you can start shaping your mindset around change around viewing things more positive around how you influence people and others so this guy was um, speaking on behalf of the fierce conversation group that book by susan scott um, and was sharing some of those tips yeah so uh, rebecca that's where i was going in my head too that just in my own personal experience of trying to self-regulate i think that there this is where stress management techniques and my faith come into play quite a bit and where I use one or both of those in coaching other people. So um, the more that we can stay in a more positive mindset and um, try to manage our stress at the beginning and throughout the day, the more that we have the capacity to be able to self-regulate in the moment. When we are super stressed, we're almost on autopilot and our ability to self-regulate in the moment is diminished. So one of the things that I personally have started doing is um, using at least a couple of times a week a mindfulness app. And um, it is something that I pay for a subscription, but there are websites and YouTube videos out there if you want help walking through it. The whole idea behind mindfulness is to kind of be able to dump out of your head what's in there and just get really present with yourself and your body to notice where your stress and your tension is to focus on something besides your thoughts. And I find that um, I have a reminder that goes off at lunchtime every day. That's a good place for me to take a deep breath, get a little self-aware about how stressed am I? Am I interacting with people the way that I would choose to? 
um, if I were coaching me <laughs> and um, reset that few minutes, I do it for three minutes is what I, I have the subscription set to. Three minutes allows me to take a deep breath and feel like it's almost a nap to reset the rest of my day. Um, Sandy, I know that you have something that you do at the beginning of the day here. Yeah, so one of the things that I do, um, I feel like the morning routine is really important in my life because I wake up with an instant to-do list in my head. I know, Rebecca, you were up at 5 a.m. this morning with an instant to-do list in your head. Um, and so I can get out of bed and immediately be grumpy because I've got too much to do that I'm not going to be able to accomplish. So my sort of um, opportunity to self-regulate that, to start my day on a positive note, is twofold. One is um, even before I get out of bed. So as soon as I hit the alarm clock to turn it off and I go, today is Tuesday, <laughs> whatever day it is, my first stop is to, to run through mentally my list of things that I am grateful for, which starts with waking up today and being healthy and being strong and having a job that supports um, a fantastic life and to have a loving family and friends support group. Um, that coupled with my morning have to get to the gym, even though I don't want to go outside and I don't want to have to work and sweat. Those two things in the morning I have found have allowed me to reshape um, my view on the day. And I have gotten feedback about how that impacts my coworkers. So when I don't start off the day grateful and exercising, my whole outlook is different. And that includes how I speak, how I interact with others. Um, and I get that feedback on days where I didn't make it to the gym and somebody says, are you okay? You're kind of quiet. Oh, that's that's a, um, the feedback I need to say, I'm not in the right headspace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw a quote recently that said, your energy becomes their energy. And so whatever practices help you best arrive at work calm, focused, and relaxed, will benefit everyone that you're around because it is, a, it's a feeder to their energy. I, so I do hear like yoga, mindfulness, exercise has a lot of mental benefits. We're going to talk a little bit later about vacation and travel, kind of stepping away from work and the positive benefits of that as well. But that's certainly, certainly a big piece of it. I think for me, um, you know, it's been helpful in the, in the past years to really understand a bit more of the neuroleadership work that's been done. And in this one in particular, it talks about kind of the tolerance for ambiguity. And that's a tough one because the brain research says that uncertainty is actually a major driver of disengagement and worry and stress. And yet with the pace of change and the things that are happening in every industry and in every organization and every home and every school, um, there's just, a lot less we know about the future than we probably are comfortable with. And so one of the things it suggests in the brain research is an uncertainty will be 
answered in a way if you're involved in the change even if there's not yet an answer but that you found a way to be at the table or have a voice through either a group that's working on it or yourself being involved or influencing it and that connection that community of peers also dealing with that same change are really helpful coping strategies so that you don't feel like you're dealing with it alone you're the only one in the world being impacted by this change So they say status, um, helping get some relatedness or connectedness to others in the same thing, and really helping um, get close enough to the uncertainty to understand what is fair for you in the outcome. Because an unfair outcome, right, that's where all the injustice kinds of ideas come. They really start to play with our mental um, abilities to really accept that. And I think that's what becomes ultimately the hardest to regulate once you think something's been done harmful in your direction it's a lot harder to approach it with a positive mindset yeah I would just build on that and say from a a neuropsychology standpoint um, we frequently talk about the amygdala hijack so the amygdala regulates our emotions and um, boy can we get hijacks very quickly (laughs) especially in change ambiguity stress any of those things I think uh, a lot of what helps us um, get out of that mode, which um, just to put it in kind of layman's terms, is where we get our fight-flight mindset. And we're either in fight, I'm I'm defending myself, or flight, I'm fleeing and not wanting to deal with this. Um, A a big way to counteract that is to take some deep breaths. It allows our um, brain to get more to the rational side of things and less in the emotional side. So um, the stress management techniques there of relaxation, deep breathing, uh, yoga, things like that, even just for a moment can help. So the self-awareness and the self-regulation are such critical components of EQ, right? If we're not aware of what we're doing that's potentially detrimental to our relationships with others and we're not willing to do anything about it to regulate, we're certainly not going to be successful. And that's kind of where the third component of motivation comes in. So that's the intrinsic drive, the intrinsic drive to do accomplish whatever it might be. And we we mentioned in the beginning that part of that motivation is simply the motivation to self-regulate, to say, this takes effort. I don't just wake up and naturally do these things. Um, And so do I have the drive to better myself? Do I have the drive to be a better version of me? Um, And so that motivation um, characteristic can be um, described as having optimism even in the face of failure. And that, for me, can be really challenging. Um, I tend to be a pragmatist and uh, look at every situation, uh, both as the potential positive outcomes, but uh, very realistic about uh, the negatives associated with that particular situation. Um, and for me, if, I, if I'm going to be focused on optimism, um, it has to be relying on my faith. It has to be coming back to my absolute belief that God has a plan. And that plan is much more significant than I could ever understand and will always be accurate versus the ridiculous plans that I make of myself. So. Uh, For me, 
um, that motivation, that intrinsic drive comes back to my faith. And that's when I'm struggling where I have to go to, to keep that motivation. Yeah, I agree with that. I think one practice that I'm trying to do more of is really reframing whatever I'm up against into something that can be positive. And I read an article recently that gave a very simple example that actually I could definitely relate to, which was about dishes, these dirty dishes that pile up in the sink and, you know, just what a unending chore that is, right? And this person said, I chose to start looking at dishes as a blessing, and I was like, oh, I'm intrigued. How did, how did this happen? I need to think that way. And, you know, her points were pretty valid. And, and it's one I'm working on just in a, a few areas. But it was like, dishes mean we ate at home. And eating at home meant probably higher quality conversation than we would have had in the restaurant or driving around town between activities. Dishes meant we probably ate healthier. So I provided a more nutritious meal to my family. Dishes meant I could actually afford to feed my family. Many people don't have that luxury, right? They they worry about that and all the food inequities. And so to turn something from like a nagging chore to like this is truly a blessing. So I was working with a group last week and I asked them, I said, think about one frustration and how you can turn it into a blessing and one of my colleagues said, oh, I hate my monthly reports. And it was month end, right? And he's like, these monthly reports, they just feel like such an administrative burden. And like, I'm just having to do a bunch of unnecessary busy work. But he said, at the end of the day, if I step back and think about it, they do tell me the health of my business. They help me predict what I need to do. They really help drive my strategy. And without this data, I would really be burdened to know how to how to do well in this business. And so I can see the data as a blessing. And and so we kind of went around the room and talked about, you know, something you're frustrated about and something that now you want to start thinking about first as a positive and what that positive outcome is. And just a simple reframing activity, I think really could benefit many of us throughout the day. Yeah, I think that these are really good examples to provide kind of a different perspective. As a coach, I oftentimes have people who their motivation is to keep their job and working on emotional (laughs) intelligence or to Mm -hmm. advance because um, maybe not um, having enough emotional intelligence is impacting their ability to lead effectively and their bosses to look at promotability with them. And so I actually spend a lot of time working on what's their motivation behind this. It is, as Sandy said, it is tough work to figure out how to do this. It does not come automatically to most people. And um, so what are our motivators? And sometimes it is external ones from other people giving us feedback that we are not coming across the way that we think that we are. And so in order to avoid failing by getting fired or demoted or getting stuck, um, that becomes the reason to build on the other components of emotional intelligence. Um, for, for me personally, it goes back to, as Sandy said, my faith. And I go back to one of my life verses from the Bible is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, And I'll read it quickly from the NIV version. 
So for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Um, for me, that's why I keep pushing and trying and overcome failure, because I may see it as failure, and yet it may be part of God's plan, and I need to um, persevere. I need to have work-life balance so that I can take the moments to breathe, to travel, to pray, to do all of that and not just get in autopilot stress mode. Absolutely. So our fourth component of emotional intelligence is empathy or being able to understand the emotions of others around us. Um, so Michelle, I would imagine in your coaching business that you have worked with a number of people who have struggled in this area, who have struggled to really understand um, the emotions of people who are around them, even when those emotions might be strong. How do you deal with that when that person shows up in front of you? Yeah, so the, the upside of empathy is that um, we can't hide it when we don't have much of it. <laughs> and so it is one of those things that usually shows up kind of live and in the moment in coaching. And um, so it is something that I can uh, maybe provide an example to someone or tell a story of my own and see what type of empathy response do I get from the other person. Is it what I would expect when I'm telling such a story that um, they would connect with it and maybe see that I'm having a hard time? Or um, do they kind of sit there with uh, a blank expression on their face, not really able to process it? Um, so the, the downside of empathy, in my opinion, is that um, it's fairly hardwired. And so it's something that we either are predisposed to have more or less of it. But I have seen people that can really work on displaying true empathy. For me, feels like I'm going to sit in this moment with you and just be. I'm not going to try to fix you. I am not going to try to make you feel like we need to move on quickly. I'm just going to let you have this moment and I'm going to hold space with you. And um, even for somebody who's, say, more introverted and technical in their background, this is where silence can do a lot. Um, so if you don't know what to say, this oftentimes happens in grief, right? Somebody has the death or a loss of a relationship or a person, and we don't know what to say. Oftentimes, just being willing to sit in that space and not move the person forward is the best form of empathy that we can show that I get that it's tough, and um, I'm just going to be here with you. Yeah, that's a hard one. Getting comfortable with the silence, I think, is really challenging, I, I've been taking um, a little bit more look into strengths and um, kind of that whole Gallup mindset. And my own strengths profile has empathy pretty low, not in the bottom, but not very high. And I have reflected on that. Like, what is it about that? Because I am a very sympathetic crier. If someone else cries, I cry. And so that makes me feel like I'm probably a very empathetic person. But when I look at this definition and really treating people according to their emotional reactions, I'm not sure I'm good at that maybe individualization, which is actually pretty low in my strengths. But 
one thing I've noticed uh, recently is just how I go about asking questions and providing that opportunity for people to share. You know, when you're asking a lot of, um, why do you think this change is hard? Why are you struggling with this? Like those why questions, although in change we talk all the time about the importance of telling people why, but when you start asking them a bunch of why, it actually puts them very much on the defense, right? Instead of asking, how can I help you? What kind of challenges does this present for you that we can work through together? Kind of assuming it's going to be positive, but asking them for help on how they want to close the gap versus challenging why there's a gap, why aren't you good? Um, so that's a way I'm trying to practice being more empathetic, just in reframing even how I ask the questions. Yeah, I call that curiosity, by the way. And I say it's mm -hmm. kind of fake empathy. <laughs> if I'm asking you <laughs> questions, you don't have to know that I don't really care um, about what you feel. Um, I can care what you think, and it still comes across to the other person. So it's a little bit manipulative, but it still works. <laughs> but you said it still works. Is that what I heard? Yes, it still works. <laughs> mm. But it's better than saying something stupid. Yes, right. right. Yeah. You know, I... That reminds me, I, my favorite show right now is Orange is the New Black, which I only watch on airplanes and even then guarded because... <laughs> Lord knows some of the scenes are not very appropriate for who may be seated next to you. But the Emotional Intelligence 2.0 book was actually shown in a, in one of the scenes I was watching recently. Wow. And a character died, and I won't mention who, <laughs> but they tried really hard to keep one inmate from saying something stupid to the mourning group because they just knew her makeup was one to try and fill in the space, right? Not be comfortable with that silence, and in doing so, create major political climate issues within the prison. So anyway, that's my pop culture reference. Nice. Yeah. You know, I recently found out about an organization called Roots of Empathy that is doing something that I think is really cool with uh, elementary school kids. So the program, um, I think, targets about like fourth grade, uh, fourth graders that age. And the whole idea is to teach anti-bullying principles. And if you have empathy towards someone, right, you're not going to be able to bully them because you're understanding their emotions, you're understanding that that person may be hurt, and so you will stop whatever the behavior is that you were doing that was bullying in nature. But I saw it, uh, the BBC uh, ran a story on it, um, and the program itself I think is fascinating. So they actually take babies. So think, okay, I'm not good at this. Like think maybe a six-month-old baby. And they take the baby into the classroom um, periodically. I forget what the, um, how often they do this. And they introduce the fourth graders to the baby. And the fourth graders are suddenly faced with someone who is more vulnerable to them than them. And they take on a, a caretaking role, even though they're not to take on a caretaking role. And they start to see how the baby um, has varying emotions in that, say, one-hour time frame with the students. They can see that baby go through a number of different emotions. So it teaches the kids the ability to recognize emotions uh, in others. And then 
and they demonstrate how the fourth graders behavior can impact the emotions of the baby. So you could do something like smile or clap your hands with the baby and the baby smiles versus give the ball to the baby and then take the ball away and now the baby is crying or upset. So it helps, uh, and then of course there's a facilitator there explaining and teaching um, about these emotions, but I found it fascinating. So although the program is targeting children for anti-bullying purposes in the schools, I have to believe that that's shaping those kids such that as adults, their level of EQ is going to be higher. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I'll have to look into that. I think it's based in Canada. I just started Mm -hmm. looking at it because I just thought it was fascinating and I wanted to know how I could get more involved. Yeah, yeah. So empathy, one of those critical skills for building relationships with others. So we're to our final component of emotional intelligence with it, which is social skills, are actually managing relationships with others, obviously a key to success. Yeah, so one of the things I found recently, and it ties back into faith and kind of spirituality, is that connecting with others from a faith perspective can help you build a sense of purpose, um, which is important for a lot of the things we've talked about today. But also that feeling of interconnectedness can allow people to release control. And, um, you know, I, I recently was reminded about how wanting to, to be right is the number one cause of self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. That in that kind of emotional pyramid, we will release a lot of control and we'll demonstrate empathy, et cetera. But when we start to feel like we can't no longer have the right idea or the right opinion or the winning thing, we often then do hijack ourselves and get back into that place where it's like, well, win or lose, I want to be right, right? And we often lose. So that was kind of a reminder for me of just the social impact of that. And the more we feel interconnected, vulnerable, trusting amongst our group socially, the more we are willing to let some of that control go. And so that was kind of the, the first thing that came to mind. But, um, you know, I, I do think social is probably the easiest thing to observe in terms yeah. of how, EQ, how, how intelligent a person's EQ is. Um, and, you know, we've already talked a bit about being an introvert versus an extrovert. And it doesn't mean you can't be social if you're not an extrovert. But um, anyway, that, that lack of social intelligence, I think, does really make itself more visible than, than some of these other things. I don't know, Michelle, how you feel about that? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. I would agree. I think where I go in my head on this is that oftentimes people take this back to gender differences. Um, so it is true that by and large, females are more relational than males. However, this is something that both need equally, and I see it play out that both need equally. Um, I think that it's important in, in the way that I work on this in coaching is, are you acting as if you are somebody who you would want to work with? Mm. 
So do you do rapport building? Do you know some personal things about the people with whom you work? That's important in people feeling like you care about them as just an individual and a person. It goes above and beyond being a worker or whatever the role is, whether it be a wife, mother, husband, father, brother, son, etc. I think that there's a, a connectedness that you talked about, Rebecca, that's really important here that um, is both genders need this equally. I think um, as a single person, I have to spend a tremendous amount of time intentionally building this in in order to make sure that I have this connectedness. It does not come by itself as most people who are married with families have. And um, the more that I can practice work-life balance, the more that I make time for this. So at the end of the day, that's kind of my motivator is that the more that I am spending time with my friends and my family, the more that I'm being somebody who I would want to be around when I get too um, too reclusive. I um, want to go into more a solitary mode. I get too much in my head, and I'm not always the person who others would want to interact with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I am... Um was reminded when you were saying that of this idea of emotional capital. If we haven't built up some of that emotional capital, then having the conversations that you need to have, especially maybe from a leader employee perspective, just become a lot more difficult. Um, and that nice really doesn't have anything to do with it. It's being real and it's hard to be real with people if you don't have some of that connectedness or that deeper kind of emotional tie. Um, so that's good. And you guys are both doing really well at this because I want to be around both of you. So nice work. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. So well, we likewise. <laughs> so we have walked through the five components of emotional intelligence. I think we've done a, a nice job of tying our faith into those components of EQ, but we haven't touched as much on travel. We mentioned it earlier. So your thoughts on um, EQ as it interrelates with traveling. One of our patterns. When I travel, I do much better at emotional intelligence, social skills, <laughs> empathy, etc. Because I'm much more laid back, I'm less stressed, and I'm able to be more present. So when I'm on vacation, I like that version of me much better. <laughs> <laughs> I like work, Michelle, and vacation, Michelle. Me too. Thank you. But I agree. Um yeah, so I recently saw a, a couple points that said actually the main benefit from taking a vacation is from planning it, that it's actually more mentally beneficial or you get that higher state of, call it engagement or excitement during the planning phase than actually in executing a vacation or, or taking it. And that, as we all know, when you come back, from work, it's over, right? Like it quickly usually changes. So one of the things that they were saying was actually enjoy the time you're planning a vacation because that's when you're getting a lot of the benefits of it. I know Sandy in your profile, it says always have my next vacation planned. And I'm the same way. Like I love planning trips and, and really it does just even give me a mental break thinking about what I'm going to be doing and where we're going and how fun that will be. 
So one article from Psychology Today says that vacations help you break the stress cycle, help you gain perspective on our problems. We often come back with more creativity. And this, you know, Psych Central blog mentions the study about how this pre-trip high is very real and may have more benefits than taking the actual trip itself. Um, But one thing they said, too, is that it's best to plan an easy return for yourself. And I will say that's one thing I've gotten better about is blocking that next half day that I return so that I don't feel as bad about keeping up with email while I'm gone because I have no protected time on my calendar to catch up on email the day I get back in the office. So anyway, that's that's some of what the research says. And I can say for me personally, I a lot of my good ideas, big ideas do come when I'm not thinking about it, right? And innovation research says the same thing. You've got to kind of step away and, and maybe even – unconsciously um, some of these things resolve themselves when you're not trying to think about it too hard. So I want to make sure I understood you correctly, Rebecca. So what you're saying is that my desire to always have my next vacation planned is a positive thing. Absolutely. Yes, you are apparently less stressed. <laughs> <laughs> and actually yes. going on vacation is a positive thing. Absolutely. Okay, so let's plan our next trip. Yay. Done. (laughs) So we have uh, walked through why emotional intelligence is important. We've walked through five um, components of EQ and what we can do to further strengthen our emotional intelligence, which will allow us to more uh, effectively interact with others and ultimately live a happy life. Thank you all for your contributions today. Just a reminder that if any of our listeners have questions or comments, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Please find us at leadtravelpray.com, and we look forward to talking with you.